The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Wheel Bearings. I'm Dan Roth. And I'm Sam Abu Al Samad. And so before we get started, uh, you told me last week that you had a chance to talk with Chris Shunk. <laughs> yes, I did. And uh, yeah, I chatted with Chris and uh, you know, told him that you know, lots of people want to hear him on the show. Unfortunately, um, while Chris would, would like to join us, uh, given his current employment, he is not allowed to participate in uh, such events uh, at this time. So well, hopefully at some future date, you know, if things change, uh, we will get him to join us. Uh, but uh, in the meantime, you know, uh, here's wishing the best to Chris. That makes me very sad because I do. Um, I miss uh, his unique pronunciations and his his definite uh, his his podcast hosting spirit. Um, so we'll you know we'll, we'll pour one out for him <laughs> for now. Uh, and in the meantime, we'll talk about what we're driving. It is a very Hyundai Kia week. Uh, you've got the Kia Nero FE, which is a pretty interesting new model from them. Yeah, actually, uh, the delivered, I uh, turned that one back in yesterday after driving it for a week. <clears throat> and um, so the, the Nero is the uh, fraternal twin, uh, I guess call it a fraternal twin. It, it's the sibling of the uh, Hyundai Ionic uh, that I had a few weeks ago. So a few years back, uh, Hyundai Motor Group, uh, which is the parent of, of Hyundai, Kia, and uh, now the Genesis brands, uh, decided to develop uh, a, a dedicated platform for electrified vehicles. And so they, uh, the first couple, the first two models to come off of this were the Ionic and the uh, Nero. Uh, and, you know, it, in these uh, these two models uh, over the course of uh, starting this year earlier this year with the hybrids, uh, they're adding battery electric and plug-in hybrid variants as well. Um, and what's what's interesting is you know Hyundai went they, the two the two brands went in kind of different directions with the top hats they put on these vehicles. That is the the body styles that they put on these vehicles. Um, you know underneath mechanically the two are identical. They have the same 1.6 liter four cylinder GDI engine, uh, six speed dual clutch transmission, and Hyundai's hybrid system that sandwiches the electric motor in between the uh, the gas engine and the transmission. Uh, and, you know, same suspension, brakes, everything else. The difference is that Hyundai decided to go with a, a sloping five-door hatchback design, you know, sort of vaguely um, Prius-like. Uh, and Kia decided to go with a more of a, a crossover-style body on theirs. 
And uh, what's what's been interesting is, you know, since the cars launched uh, earlier this year, the Nero has outsold the Ionic by a factor of about two and a half to one, uh, which kind of, you know, reflects the way that the market as a whole is going. You know, buyers are, you know, abandoning cars and going for crossovers. Well, uh, yeah, but the I mean, the Nero also looks cool. Yeah, no, it's 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 a good looking car. I, I have I have no complaints about the way it looks. You know, it's it's a little more it's I'd say it's not quite as stylish as the Sportage. You know, so it's very similar. It's very close in dimensions to the Sportage. Um, it's you know, a little bit a uh, little bit shorter body uh, wheelbase is about the same. So there's a little bit less cargo space in the back behind the, the rear seat. But the way it's configured, there's also a little bit more rear seat room than in the Sportage. Um, design wise, um, the Nero looks kind of more like a scaled down uh, Sorento. Uh, in terms of, you know, it's greenhouse shape and everything, uh, whereas the Sportage has a little bit more distinct, a uh, little, I guess I would say you know, a little bit more upscale design uh, than the Nero. Not not to say that there's anything wrong with the Nero. Um, it's just a, a little more, um, a little more mainstream, I would say. And so what's it? Uh, the FE is, the, there's a couple of different models, but the, the FE is sort of the, uh, it's the high fuel economy model, but they have it's it's, it's the entry level model. Right. So, you know, it's got the lower rolling resistance tires. It, like, you know, Hyundai has the Ionic Blue is their um, their their high mileage model. And it gets a couple of extra miles per gallon versus the others. Uh, you know, and then uh, for the Nero, there's the the FE um, and you can also get it in a touring trim level. Um, the, and the, the thing about the FE is, um, it's actually really reasonably priced. Like, you know, the one I had, um, was, came to like 23,875, I think, including delivery, which, you know, for these you know, for a compact crossover, you know, in this segment, um, you know, regardless of powertrain is actually, you know, it's pretty reasonable. It's, it's about, you know, it's in the, the same ballpark as other compact crossovers. Um, what's distinct about this one is the fact that it's also rated at like 49 miles per gallon by the EPA, uh, or I think, I think it's 47 combined, uh, and like 40, 46, 49 city highway, something like that. And I got, uh, about 46 and a half miles per gallon during the week I drove it, uh, without really trying very hard. So that's, that's the most I've ever gotten out of a crossover. That's I mean that's a that's a lot of miles per gallon. <laughs> yeah, you know it's a couple of miles per gallon shy of what I got with the Ionic about a month ago, uh, but you know it's also a little bit taller than the Ionic. You know the aerodynamics are not quite as good. You know still you know if you're getting forty seven miles per gallon in a car like this, you got nothing to complain about. So well I mean do you actually though? Uh, how is the the driving experience? Do you actually sort of sacrifice? Um, ride or handling or uh, i guess you probably do but is it only discernible to somebody with your discriminating automotive palette versus uh the the buyer who's actually gonna you know be sort of on on the lookout for this car yeah um the you know the fe and and the blue you know they they have the smaller wheel and tire package you know lower rolling resistance tires so ultimate grip is not going to be as good as what you'll get in you know some of the other trim levels, uh, but you know dynamically, you know they're both really good. Uh, you know the the ride quality is fine. There's nothing to complain about there. It did just just did you know 
perfectly acceptable on on Michigan roads. You know, it's not it's not plush, but um, you know, it's very well controlled. You know, didn't wasn't bouncing around. Or- how, yeah, how did it, how did it do on your your stretch of what is it? Uh, 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 Ninety four. Yeah, with the the high yeah. frequency. It's it's fine there. It had had no issues at all. You know, it kept, was nice and stable. You know, just you know. The body was well controlled, uh, absorbed all that stuff without any issues. Um, you know, um, steering feedback, you know, it, it's okay. You know, it's for, for, you know, for compared to most mainstream cars in this size class and price point, it was fine. You know, it's not, it's not a sports car, but, um, you know, the steering was tight. Um, you know, like I said, not a lot of feedback, but, you know, it felt tight. It, it, it was, it was more than acceptable. Yeah, and I think your average consumer would have no complaints about this thing. Um, the one, the one issue with the the FE, you know, is uh, you know it's fairly basic uh, in terms of its equipment levels. You know, it you know it's got you know dual zone climate control. Um, it's got a touchscreen audio uh, system with uh, support for Apple CarPlay and Android Auto. Um, but you know it doesn't have and cloth you know cloth seats cloth seats are nice they're comfortable uh reasonably supportive um but you know it's not it's not a real premium feeling vehicle but it doesn't feel cheap either you know it's it's good it, you know for yeah. you know for what you expect in 2017 it's a very good vehicle and you know there's really nothing i'd complain about you know if you want some more amenities you can get things like leather seats and there's no driver assist features on this one uh you know so no adaptive cruise control just basic cruise control uh if you want that you can get that on on the other trim levels um but aside from that you know it if you're if you're looking for a reasonably affordable new car with lots of cargo space um and you know lots of room you know for for five adults um and great fuel economy, you'd have a hard time doing much better than this. Yeah, well, and that's the thing that I notice about both Hyundai and Kia, and we'll, we'll get to that a little bit more in depth in a, in a minute. But you know, just overall, their cars do a lot of very important but uh, somewhat overlooked things really, really well. The ergonomics inside are are generally pretty solid they're they're better than a lot of the class you know when you when you think about what's in a toyota or a honda or even a you know a ford uh the hyundai systems are pretty well thought out they're mostly responsive they like think that you you know how to control it without having to open the manual it's not as frustrating to use there's you know still some give and take in terms of how functional that touchscreen is yeah it's, it's not it's not flashy but it it is very functional yeah you know, very everything just works yeah uh, um and and you know the the touchscreen you know the the touch the screen itself is responsive enough and if you're using android auto or carplay you know, then the interface, you know, will be familiar, you know, and it works just fine. Uh, and even even the stock interface, you know, is far from the worst I've seen. It's you know, it, it works well. And, you know, one of the things I like about Hyundai and Kia is they've done a good job. You know, the, the touchscreen displays that they use are very resistant to glare. They work great with, you know, if you're wearing polarized sunglasses, you know, nothing fades out of out of view. Um you know that when the sun is shining in through the the side window you know you it's the the display is still clearly visible so you know they do work well in that respect yeah i mean the one thing i tend to find about hyundai kia is that the screens aren't you can't dim them enough at night without 
resorting to shutting them off, but that's a, kind of a personal preference in terms of. Yeah. And, and that's, uh, yeah, I mean, that's pretty common to most vehicles. So, you know, with touchscreen displays um, and, and, you know, granted, you know, again, if you're using, you know, if you're using Android auto, then, you know, it at night, it does automatically switch to a dark mode, you know, yeah. it goes to it from a white background to a black background. So when I get into a car, one of the first things I do is switch it to always be in night mode <laughs> <laughs> and uh, manually adjust the, the, the brightness. Um, you know, again, I'm just kind of a, that's, that's a personal preference thing. So I like that you can adjust it. The other thing that I find really uh, sort of intriguing about this, and, and again, it's not just the Nero, but it's, it's generally Hyundai Kia's kind of commitment uh, to offering value. Um, a lot of the safety gear, while it's not necessarily that the, the you know, the ADAS stuff is not necessarily offered on the FE. Uh, all you got to do is spend about another 1300 bucks or not even another thousand bucks. And you've gotten yourself to the, to the LX where all that stuff is, is optional. So it's not, it's not just a thousand dollars more to get it, but it's still attainable. Um, you know, it's a $23,000 car has, you know, smart cruise control, lane departure warning, forward collision, you know, the emergency braking available. It's not, it's not standard, uh, but it's available. And this, this is a pretty good price spread. Uh, you know, the Nero starts at right around 20 and it goes up to right about 30. That's, that's pretty much in the meat yeah, of. Well, the, yeah, the, the, the FE is the cheapest one. It, right. It's at 22.9 and then you add the delivery charge and that gets you to 23 uh, 23.8. Um, and then, you know, a loaded, you know, touring, you know, gets you just shy of $30,000. But yeah, you, you know, you said, you know, the, uh, for example, the, um, the, uh, EX, you know, is at 25, seven, you know, and I think that, that may already include the, the lane keeping system. It looks like it's still optional. So like, it looks like that stuff is optional across the board, probably with a package. Um, but even so, you know, it was interesting to read uh, Dave Sullivan's take on the new Traverse, which doesn't make ADAS standard until you spend 50 something thousand dollars. Um, you know, it's a little bit easier to stomach here where the car is, you know, 30 or below. Uh, but it's like right off the bat, it's available in, in sort of the second second lowest trim level. Yeah. So so on, on the LX, you can get the advanced technology package that includes automatic emergency braking, forward collision warning, the adaptive cruise control and lane departure uh, warning. Um, and that's fourteen hundred and fifty bucks. So, you know, right there. Yeah. So uh, a twenty five thousand dollar car and you've got yeah. all that stuff. Exactly. So, you know, and and, you know, it's the most fuel efficient crossover, you know, that you're going to get at, from anybody, yeah. regardless of powertrain. Uh, and the, the EX does have the rear cross traffic and the blind spot detection stuff as standard. So, hmm. um, yeah, and I mean, I'm, I'm impressed. I continue to be impressed with the way that they've figured out how to actually build a car that feels solid and doesn't cost a lot, but doesn't feel cheap either. Like th these are difficult things to do. Uh, the ergonomics inside are, are really good. You know, we talked about the the infotainment, but also just just the HVAC. You know, the 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 steering wheel, the relationship of all the 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 controls and the things that you touch. They're they're pretty well thought out in uh, these cars. And and you know, I haven't had a Nero, but I you know I, I see a lot of familiar high points. 
one uh, one thing I did notice um, when you fold down the rear seats, um, at least in the in the the Nero Hybrid, uh, which is the the one that's available right now, is um, it's not flat. It's not the the rear seat backs when you fold them down are not flush with the the cargo floor uh, in the back. So the, there's you know there's a couple of, there's about a two two and a half inch step up uh, to the rear seats, so you don't have a flat load floor in there. Um, and I think the reason why is I think when the plug-in hybrid version arrives this fall, part of the battery pack will be underneath that cargo floor, which will lift it up. And that, I think in that one, it'll probably be flush uh, for that version. I see. So um, do we know when that plug-in one is coming? Uh, it should be sometime late this fall. So probably November, November, December timeframe. Just in time for Christmas. <laughs> yeah, for, and, and that'll be available in both the Ionic and the, uh, uh, the Nero. Uh, and, uh, so that, so the Ionic will have three variants by the end of the year, the plug-in hybrid, the regular hybrid and the battery electric. Uh, and there will be the two hybrid versions of the Nero and then, um, Kia still hasn't confirmed when they're going to launch the, the battery electric version, but it'll probably be sometime uh, in the first half of 2018 for a battery electric version of the Nero. I, I, I still expect the Nero to continue to outsell the Ionic. I, I think it probably will. I'm, I'm trying to get some, some data to see how it's doing globally, but um, certainly here in the, in the U.S., it'll, I, I do expect it'll continue to, to do better for the foreseeable future. Yeah. Uh, well, and I mean, they've kind of done a little of that Prius thing where they've they've created a sort of new niche model that doesn't look like anything else, where the Ionic sort of goes after the leader of its own niche. Uh, and, yeah. you know, it's very good, but it's still. Well, I think I think the Ionic's a better, better looking car than the Prius. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It doesn't have the, the weirdness of the, the current generation Prius. So when I see the new Prius uh, and the Prius Prime, what I think is like they're trying to bring back the tail fin. If you look at the the rear quarters, it almost looks like a 59 Chevy in like teensy tiny form. Yeah, you're kind of right. <laughs> it's weird. <laughs> that car is just so ugly. <laughs> um, so what about your Hyundai that you've been driving? Yeah, so I've been driving the uh, Elantra Sport and I could start off with saying it's no GTI. Um, and that's sort of the, the catchphrase for the week, because that's how I explain it is like it's it's sort of a Hyundai version of of a GLI, I guess, because it's a sedan, so it'd be a Jetta GLI. Um, that's not to say it's bad. It's just you know that's a high bar, and it it took me a little while to warm up to the car uh, because it it on paper it's it's one of those cars that seems to do really well against the competition on paper, but the reality is is somewhat different. Um, it's a, it's a good car. It's a good sedan. It's, you know, roomy. It looks great. Uh, it's, it seems well assembled. Um, I, all of the things I just got done praising, uh, <laughs> the Nero for they're, they're the same here in the Elantra. The materials are good. The ergonomics are great. Uh, you know, the basics of the Elantra are very good. Um, this has, uh, a turbocharged, uh, four cylinder. I think it's like what the 1.6 liter GTDI. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like what? 201 horsepower, I think. Yeah. It, 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 uh, it, it's quiet. I wanted a little bit more noise from it. Um, you know, and it, it's, it seems kind of isolated, which is 
okay but in a car like this uh, you know you, you kind of want to feel it a little bit I, I think they they sort of purposely went a little bit um conservative with it uh and it has a manual which is that's a good start unfortunately the controls are sort of where it lets you down you know like, there's not as much mechanical feel through the shifter uh, it feels kind of isolated um and and just more economy car than than you know pocket rocket uh and some of the electronic stuff makes it a little difficult to shift smoothly you know it, a lot of cars now they'll they'll do that with the manual they'll they'll helpfully blip the throttle for you and stuff because they assume that you're going to stall it because you know why would anybody know how to drive a manual these days so <laughs> you wind up with the electronics doing the thing that you're going to do and it's yeah uh it it winds up being a little little strange to get used to um but uh, like all of these criticisms sort of melt away except for one uh which is the the steering the steering is really well weighted uh it's it's squared off wheels a little funky um when you're you're gripping around the edge uh but uh it doesn't have much feel through the steering and that that never gets much better uh but if you if you drive it in anger the the elantra sort of it it comes alive the elantra sport is it's so it's almost like a little bit of a wallflower you know that the chassis tuned pretty well turns out you can rotate it with the throttle pretty well um you just you have to mean it you know you got to get the engine up above 3000 rpm before it really starts to to uh put its nose to the grindstone and it, like after a week with it you know my last day with this car was great <laughs> i was <laughs> i like i was like i finally understand you um it wasn't sort of that uh instant um you know like you're you're instantly smitten with a, a gti this one was a little bit more of a a slow burn. Um, and that's not to say it's bad. You know, it has a lot of high points. I thought the, the materials are great inside. It's, it's pretty comfortable. Um, it, it's, it's, you know, summer here. So it's, it's nice. You put the windows down, you open that sunroof up, you drive around, you've got a car that, that is decent to drive. It rides nice. It's good body control. It handles well. You can hear the exhaust a little bit with the windows down, which is, is fun. They've, they've tuned it. So it's got a little bit of a burble to it. That that's real pleasant on a summer afternoon, summer evening, <laughs> just driving around. It reminded me of the old days of the European sports sedans from the eighties. I liked that. So cool. Yeah, yeah. I, I, <laughs> I haven't driven the the sport yet. Uh, I've driven the um, uh, the limited and the eco versions, and you know, I, like like you, I was very impressed. You know, the same kinds of things. You know, we've talked about before with Hyundai. You know, they're just really solidly put together you know and unfortunately you know the 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 one big problem they have is you know that's it's something that's not not a hyundai issue it's just the market as a whole running away from um from cars you know to to crossovers and you know that right now that's hitting hyundai particularly hard uh, yeah because you know they have a a sedan heavy lineup um you know and you know, aside from the Tucson, um, you know, the Santa Fe's, you know, getting a little long in the tooth and there's a new one coming. Uh, we'll probably see it, you know, uh, either perhaps at the L.A. Auto Show or, or else, um, you know, maybe at the Detroit Auto Show or, uh, beginning of 2018. Uh, you know, but that's, you know, that's hurt their sales quite a bit, you know, because they've they've seen the same issue that every other brand has seen where 
sales of their car models are are declining rapid, you know, faster than um, other stuff is picking up the pace. And um, and that's you know, I think that's one of the, the reasons why Hyundai is making some shifts in their product plans and, you know, announcing some new uh, products coming to market in the next few years. I mean, a Tucson sport with the manual transmission would be cool. <laughs> Yeah, it would. <laughs> um, which is like it's a lot of the same running gear that's here, and and I don't want to sound like I I disliked the Elantra Sport. I actually really liked it. I thought that uh, against something like a Jetta GLI, it's it's really competitive. Um, and for for most people, they're not going to have the quibbles that I had. Uh, they're going to find that it's you know the shifter is is slick and smooth, and it's easy to get in gear, and it's easy to drive, and um, you know, they may actually prefer the fact that it's it's somewhat isolated in the controls that might feel luxurious versus, you know, the the, the potentially gritty feeling of a, a more mechanical kind of direct connection that that I would prefer. So, you know, it comes it does come down to to preference in, in a lot of ways. Um, and, and I just remember back, you know, like the last Elantra uh, was such a leap. It got bigger. They added the limited model, which was a lot of sort of a lot of value it brought brought some luxury features down into a segment that had typically shunned that kind of stuff um and it rode like crap <laughs> and like yeah. it just felt like an unfinished car not not unfinished but like it was it was sort of like well we we achieved all our program objectives here's the car versus like well we made sure it's really good uh and this this time around it, it it's really good it's a good car yeah. And, uh, you know, the other thing, too, is, you know, if you're not necessarily enamored with the idea of a Ford or sedan, there are other options. You know, Hyundai is uh, right now launching the uh, Elantra GT, uh, which I'll actually be driving in a couple of days. Um, they're doing a, a drive program here locally. Um which is available with the same powertrain that the, the 1.6 liter turbo. And there's also the, uh, the Kia that's based on the same platform that the Forte five, uh, as a five door hatchback, you know, so you get the Forte five SX, which is again, with the same 201 horsepower yeah. four cylinder. Um, and that's the one that, you know, I think the last episode we recorded, you know, in response to a reader question about what to get to replace a GTI, uh, that was the, uh, the one that that I recommended was that Forte. Yeah, and I think that that's that's a pretty solid recommendation. Um, you know, definitely try that one out uh, if it does all the things that this one does. Uh, it's you know the 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 Forte five if it drives like the Elantra Sport. It, it, that's that's pretty good. It you know the GTI has this gravitas to the way it goes down the road, and I don't know that any other car is going to be able to do that. Um, yeah, there's there's that certain there's that feeling of solidity that you get in German cars, you know, um, including VWs, at least when they're still relatively new, um, <clears throat> you know, eventually the, uh, the rattles. Yeah. They, they, <laughs> they do get take, clapped take out a after couple of years. Yeah. Uh, but you know, the, and you know, they have, they have other issues, which we don't need to get into yet again. Um, <laughs> but, but, no, but I was, you know, I was aiming for things like manhole covers and, and broken pavement just to see how it does. You know, that's a real test. You know, does the steering column jiggle? Do you feel it? You know, does it does it make the body shell resonate? And, and you know, none of those things happen. This is the Elantra Sporters. Is, it's, it's solid. It just it doesn't have that like real weighty precision that a, you know, that a, a GTI does. And it, that's that's really hard to do. Uh, 
So, yeah, you know, there's, there's not many companies that have managed to pull that off. Yeah. So, I, I mean, just like you love the GTI for what it is, you know, you should try this car out and, and appreciate it for what it is. Maybe you'll, you'll love it. I, I don't know. It's, it's still new on the market. So uh, we'll see. Uh, it, it, I hope they continue with it because um, it's only going to get better as they've, they've shown like they, they, you know, Hyundai and, and Kia, they only get better as they, they go, at least so far. That's been their track record. Uh, so I would not bet against them uh, continuing to improve this model. Uh, but yeah, I, I liked it a lot. The the uh, That 1.6, I'll be interested to see how you feel its uh, power delivery is. Uh, it, it's some it's occasionally lumpy, and I don't know if it's like turbo lag or, or what, uh, because there was not really a whole lot of discernible, like repeatable turbo lag but there were just places where it, it it pulled real hard and then it stopped pulling real hard and then it pulled real hard again and i i don't know what it was like a transitional moment or you know it took me a couple of days to to remind myself to always be shutting off the traction control as well um uh, so i who knows that, that, that could have been part of the problem yeah it, yeah um also the driver the driver might have been the issue so well there is always that too yeah yeah so uh yeah so we've had hyundai kia garage this week and you know what why don't we keep the theme going (laughs) and we can talk about the because you touched on it actually the fact that they have a car heavy lineup and they don't have a lot of uh crossovers or then they have no you know they have some suvs but no traditional suvs and uh no trucks um they're looking to solve that problem with the uh a new truck that is supposedly sort of the production version of the Santa Cruz uh, concept car that we saw back in what, 2015? Uh, yeah, 15 or 16. I can't remember which year. Yeah, they, a couple of years ago at the Detroit show, uh, Hyundai showed off this this compact pickup truck uh, called the Santa Cruz. It's a unibody uh, pickup. Um yeah, supposedly they're gonna. You know, it it got you know quite a positive reception at the show, and you know they they've said that they're gonna they're gonna build that car that vehicle. Um, not sure if it's gonna be if it's gonna still stay that size or if they're maybe gonna make it a little bit bigger. I just hope it looks the same. Yeah, because <laughs> that's an that awesome cool. looking car. Yeah, it was. It, it's pretty cool looking. Um, you know. It, I would, my guess is it'll probably get a little bit bigger and they'll probably build it off the, uh, off the new Santa Fe platform. Do you think so? I, I thought it was rumored. Um, I mean, the, the information is kind of sketchy now, uh, but. Oh, I think all the is it gonna be, is that they're going to build a pickup truck. Yeah, I thought and it was. He's assuming it's going to be, you know, just a production version of the Santa Fe, but it's not, you know, I don't know how much of a market there is necessarily for a pickup truck that small. Um, yeah, oh, right. They say it went pretty well. Right. And I would expect it to be based off the next gen uh, Santa Fe. But that's like that's not coming for a while. The, the new Tucson's going to come before that. So the thought is no, maybe. No, the Santa Fe Santa Fe is going to come next year. The, oh, is it? Okay. Tucson, yeah, the Tucson is newer. That, that one launched in 2015. Oh, right. OK, I see. So it's, uh, it's like 2018, yeah. 2019 for the 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 new Santa Fe and the Tucson's not. Not till like what twenty twenty or after yeah, or something like that. Yeah, right. So uh, I mean, it, it could it could be a, you know a compact. So it could be coming off of the next gen Tucson. That might be uh, kind of tiny though. Well, that, that's what I'm thinking. I think it just seems like that might be you know. Although you know, I mean, everybody at the show that saw it thought it was really cool. I'm not sure that there's actually a market for a pickup truck that small. Um, so you know, going to the Santa Fe platform, making it a midsize. 
you know, to go up against the likes of uh, the Honda Ridgeline and, um, you know, and the, the um, Chevy uh, Colorado and GMC Canyon. Uh, and, you know, of course, we also have the, a new Ranger uh, in that size segment coming as well. So something a little bigger, I think, would probably be a better fit for the U.S. market. Yeah. You know, who knows? I mean, maybe they'll do more than one. It's it's entirely possible. Um, but you know, and then, you know, next year we're also getting the uh, the Kona, uh, which is their uh, subcompact crossover, which is going to you know, that's going to slot in below the Tucson. Uh, that they showed that off in Korea a couple of months ago, uh, and there's also going to be uh, a battery electric version of the Kona as well. So we're going to get a, a gas version and a battery version of the Kona. So if they do this pickup too, do you think that there's any uh, threat? I guess that they it may be the first sort of battery electric pickup for sale uh, on on the U.S. market because it would seem that that's a, a really great fit for it. You know, like. Uh, they have the technology they can put it together um maybe but i doubt it um because you know one of one of the things with with pickups um is you do want to uh, have some payload you want to have some decent payload and if you start loading it up with you know say a thousand pounds of battery pack that eats right into the payload and that's going to be a problem um so you know more likely um i would i would guess they'll probably do a hybrid version oh, even hybrid yeah i mean that would be yeah. pretty good that would give it a unique selling sort of uh, advantage right so you know uh, hyundai has done uh, or you know has said that they're going to be doing a bunch more electrified vehicles i think seven more electrified vehicles over the next four years um and so i wouldn't be surprised to see a hybrid version of the santa cruz maybe a plug-in hybrid a battery electric probably not because I, I just think the battery pack would eat up too much of the the payload and and eliminate whatever truck utility the thing actually has. Yeah, well, if, especially I guess you'd completely obliterate range anytime you decide to use it as a truck. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it, you can you can get away with that in a crossover. I don't think you could get away with it in a pickup truck. Yeah, I mean, I I think it's a great development, and I, I'm fully on board with unibody sort of crossover based trucks. I mean, they're already most of the way there, where they've they've got you know cars that look like suvs so cut the back of the damn thing off and make a pickup truck i mean it's it's super practical look at the ridgeline the ridgeline is like such a perfect truck for most people yeah i mean the the, the second gen ridgeline is a fantastic truck um i think it's just the right size for for most people's needs it's got enough uh payload capacity enough um cargo you know or enough you know cargo volume capacity in the bed you know room for five in the cab uh you've got that rear trunk uh, you know, so you've got a, a locking, you know, enclosed space behind the rear axle. Um, so, you know, it, you're right. It, it's I think it, it is the perfect um, personal use pickup truck uh, as opposed to, uh, you know, you know, the, the the full size, you know, traditional you know, body on frame pickup trucks are really more for commercial use or, you know, if you really need to do heavy towing. Yeah, uh, but if you just want if you want a truck to drive on a regular basis on a daily basis, something like the Ridgeline is closer to uh, a more uh, a better solution for most people. Yeah, I mean, I there's still that hump to get over where the fact that uh, full size pickup trucks tend to be sort of like Barbie dolls for grown men. Uh, they like to buy them and accessorize them, and uh, you know, 
But anybody practical, like no. you don't need hey, that. There's no, there's no, you know, nothing stopping you from accessorizing any other kind of truck too. No, it just seems to be like like Jeep Wranglers and full size pickup trucks. Nine times out of ten, they've got some frippery on them. Uh, it, it, it's just like one of those never fail things, like Harley Davidsons. How, how many stock Harleys are there? Like the first thing people do is just like put on Vance and Hines pipes or something. Like, okay, have fun. But uh, sure. Um, props for being an enthusiast. Uh, and before I continue to insult people, we should just move on to another uh, another topic. Um, you want to stay with crossovers for a minute? Yeah. Okay. So um, last week, um, GM announced the uh, uh, details on the Chevy Equinox diesel, uh, which is uh, launching sometime in the next few weeks, I think. Um, so, you know, the we uh, the gas engine Equinox with the 1.5 liter turbo and a 2 liter turbo launched earlier this year. The um, diesel uh, is the same 1.6 liter uh, Whisper diesel they call it uh, that's al- already been available in the um, cruise for several months now, and uh, it's coming to the Equinox this fall. And it's officially rated by the EPA at 39 miles per gallon highway. Uh, which makes it the most fuel efficient uh, for now, at least the most fuel efficient uh, non-hybrid crossover and and even beating a number of uh, hybrid crossovers like the uh, uh, the Toyota RAV4 um, in fuel economy. Yeah, which is pretty impressive when you consider. I mean, the the, the hybrid is you know the second coming. <laughs> We've got although that GMD is like. Having spoken with the the powertrain engineers uh, for that, that, that's not a uncomplicated engine. That's that's a pretty sophisticated powertrain. Oh yeah, I mean any modern diesel is is pretty sophisticated. And you know, I had a chance to chat with uh, Dan Nicholson uh, last week, the uh, head of powertrain engineering at GM, um, about that engine, and as well as a couple of other uh, GM executives. And you know, it's you know they've done a lot of interesting things with that engine. Um, you know, both to to really make it more refined and also make it more fuel efficient. You know, so it's got things like, you know, cooled EGR uh, as well as, you know, urea injection and, and diesel particulate filter and all those sorts of things that you find on other diesels. But when I drove the, the cruise, you know, I mean, I, I was I was really impressed. It's it's I think it's by far and away the, the most refined diesel I've ever tried. Um, and it's significantly quieter. You know, than Jaguar's diesel that they have in the F Pace and uh, and any number of other diesels, and especially you know compared to the two liter diesel that they had in a previous generation cruise, this is way way better. Yeah, I mean, whoever thought that you'd be saying that though? And that that previous cruise diesel wasn't bad, uh, but like the most refined diesel on the market is from General Motors after their sordid history with diesel yeah. engines. I mean, I, I, that's great. Uh, I'm I'm proud of them. Yeah, no, they've they've done a fantastic job, and you know it's it's exclusively available with um, uh, the new nine-speed automatic uh, that they have in there, and you know it's I think it uh, or at least in the Equinox it's only available with the nine-speed. In the Cruise, it's available with a six-speed manual as well. Um, but this, you know, I think I think this will be. 
It'll be interesting to see how many people this engine, this this vehicle attracts, you know, and especially um, Mazda is also going to be launching their uh, CX-5 diesel uh, in the next couple of months as well. Uh, that one's a little bigger. This is a, this one's a 1.6 liter. The Mazda is a 2.2 uh, and will probably be a little bit more powerful, a little more torque than the Chevy, uh, but it may be a little bit less a little bit less fuel economy. Um, and, you know, I, I asked the GM guys, you know, if they, you know, if they thought, you know, how much of a market they really thought there was for this, you know, they, they seem to be pretty confident that particularly in the Equinox and also in the GMC terrain, which also gets this powertrain that it'll actually do pretty well. Um, we'll see, you know, whether, whether there's still a market for, you know, for diesel, uh, you know, after the whole Volkswagen fiasco, uh, you know, it, it, especially especially now, you know, with gas and you know gas prices still being so cheap, uh, you know, there was actually a story posted on uh, Jalopnik earlier today, uh, doing some price comparison of how long it would actually take to um, get to, uh, to recover the, the premium on the uh, on the diesel version of the Equinox. And there's a little flaw actually in their calculations. You know, they they did a straight up you know base price comparison of the uh, the 1.5 liter LT to the diesel LT. Um, and there, you know, when you do the price comparison, uh, the sticker the MSR the base MSRP is like thirty seven hundred dollars different. But there's also some differences in equipment. So if you option up the the gas one to the same equipment level as the diesel, the price difference is only about I think seventeen hundred. Um, and so you know the you'll get you'll get your savings back a lot faster, but it's still going to be tough. Um, you know when gas is two fifty a gallon or less. Yeah, that, and that math, like I feel like that's one of those like diversionary tactics. Um, yes, you can you can sort of calculate it and say like, well, the payback for that premium is X amount of miles. You know, it's the same thing that people do to argue against um, hybrids, but there's, there's other reasons for purchasing a car and there's other reasons for purchasing a car with a particular um, powertrain. You know, I, I mean, it, it, I think there's still a market for diesel too. Uh, I think, but what GM really needs to consider is how to win those, those burned Volkswagen customers. And that that's tough for, for GM and for Chevrolet, just because of where brand perceptions are versus Volkswagen. But the product is there. If they can. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, the, the new Equinox is really nice um, and, and not nearly as expensive as the Traverse. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, and, and, you know, GM, you know, uh, you know, Nicholson indicated that, you know, they do plan to launch some more diesels in the next couple of years. So, you know, we'll see. Um, you know, hopefully this one does reasonably well for them and, and gets, uh, uh, gets some good sales because the, the cruise, you know, even though, you know, the, the cruise, you know, it's easy to get over 50 miles per gallon in the cruise. It hasn't really been selling that well, uh, since they launched it, but I mean, it also hasn't really gotten any marketing push yet either. Um, so, you know, uh, the other thing along with the, the Equinox, they're also launching, um, the diesel in the cruise hatchback this fall. Uh, so both of those are coming in the next couple of months. Um, and they expect the hatchback cruise diesel to actually do a lot better than the sedan. Yeah. And I, I mean, that makes sense. I mean, that's, that's sort of, that is the, the heart of the diesel loving segment 
right there. Golf and Tiguan buyers. Yeah. Um, and, and, but GM has direct analogs to golf and Tiguan, you know? So. Right. Well, yeah. I'm saying the, 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 the cruise hatchback and, and the Equinox. Yeah. So they're, they're halfway there. Uh, they, they have to figure out how to spread that message and, um, yeah, good, good luck to them. If they would like some, some help with that, I can, uh, I would consult. Uh, I'm just going to use the podcast as a business development tool. <laughs> Hasn't worked yet. Um, one of these days. Yeah. Yeah. I know there's people at GM that listen to us. So yeah. Um, uh, yeah. So uh, <laughs> before I say something else stupid, let's, let's, uh, let's move on. Um, speaking of companies that sometimes say things that are stupid, uh, Uber, uh, they're not doing anything stupid this time. Actually, they're being fiscally responsible, uh, with other people's money they're killing their leasing program because they're losing like nine thousand dollars per car which we've, we've talked about but i still think it's kind of funny yeah you know and and i just uh a blog post that i just uh that i wrote last week was just published on the navigant research blog uh, my company's blog um yeah you know, and what i did was i compared this to the uh the situation uh, with GM with uh, with their express drive program that they do for Lyft and the Maven gig program. And also, you know, kind of relating, you know, how, how this might play out, you know, how some of what's going on with this could play out for companies like Uber and Lyft going forward uh, as they try to do autonomous vehicles. You know, the the issue, you know, that uh, that Uber had, you know, they lost nine thousand dollars per vehicle doing these leases. They were expecting to lose about five hundred. They, they lost nine thousand per vehicle. And, you know, for Uber, you know, to do this to what what they're trying to do is um, make um, new vehicles available to Uber drivers um at affordable prices, you know, more affordable than they could get if they tried to buy it themselves, you know, because a lot of a lot of Uber drivers, a lot of Lyft drivers, you know, may not necessarily have the, the credit to uh, credit, the credit ratings to get, you know, to buy a new vehicle. Uh, and there's also issues, you know, if you're uh, leasing a vehicle uh, to use for a ride hailing program, you know, there's mileage limits when you get a lease and, you know, you tend to accumulate a lot more miles when you're when you're using it for work like this. Um, and so, you know, the leasing program that Uber did, uh, like the, the GM programs, you know, is unlimited mileage, you know, and you get free maintenance and insurance, you know, maintenance and insurance is included, uh, with the, the lease price. Um, but you know, for Uber, um, you know, they had to buy the vehicles and then, you know, finance them, uh, them themselves before they could lease them to drivers and for them, because they, you know, they don't make vehicles. So they had to buy them on the open market. They had to uh, borrow money uh, to to subsidize this program, um, and you know that cost them a lot more than they anticipated. They borrowed like a billion dollars from Wall Street banks in 2015 to do this. Um, you know, same thing's going to happen if they try to do autonomous vehicles. You know, they're going to have to buy vehicles. They're going to have to finance them and maintain them. You know, pay for the maintenance and insurance and everything on these vehicles. Whereas for a company like GM, you know, doing essentially the same thing, they're able to take you know, you know, a couple of year old vehicles, you know, off lease vehicles that you know, instead of putting them, you know, sending them to auction uh, as used cars. Uh, Put them, you know, make them available through these programs to drivers. They, you know, they have their own captive finance arm where they, you know, they're able to borrow money at much lower interest rates, um, and uh, you know, basically do, you know, and they've got the dealer network, you know, so they can get good deals on the maintenance costs. So 
you know, it's it's a lot cheaper for them, you know, for a, a car maker to do this than it is for a company like Uber to do it. Uh, and I think, you know, this, we're going to see the same thing play out as we start to get into auto, autonomous vehicles in the next few years. But like, yes, what you say makes a lot of sense. But what about just, you know, some some companies that are, that are good at making deals banding together for their, their individual good? You get a smaller automaker uh, that, you know, or or even just a company that that gets in the middle that that does the their whole business model could be you know purchasing the the vehicles and renting out the fleet to the autonomous or the uh the ride hailing companies you know like there's there's a business to be had there just that on that one part well the, the the problem is that you know if you start adding other companies you know other layers into this everybody wants to take a cut of the revenue stream along the way well yeah everybody yeah wants to make money I, I mean i guess so if you offer them the cars at uh you you either do you do a couple of things right you offer them the cars at either price parity or a slightly lower price than they than some, a company like uber could afford and you make it much more hassle free so just much easier. They don't have to hire extra people. So right there, their cost drops again. You know, they don't they don't need people to manage that program. It's like just buy Somebody the cars, manage the program. Right. So you you build your company, your your vehicle leasing company. I mean, this this is these are things that exist already. Uh, well, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, you know who ha you know where those things exist at automakers. Yeah, that's true. Companies like GM and, Ford <laughs> and Toyota and 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 Nissan, they have all these they they all have all this infrastructure in place. They have the staff to do this stuff. You know, they they have vehicles that they have, you know, coming back, you know, lease returns, you know, that nor, you know that you know that they own and you know normally they would just send those to auction yep. and you know dealers you know used car dealers buy them and, and resell them you know so in, instead of flooding the the auctions with more off-lease vehicles they take you know take a slice of those and put them into these programs they're still you know just a couple of years old they're still relatively new you know uh in many cases, you know, current model generations, um, you know, they're, you know, they, they take the ones that are in best shape and put those out there. And, you know, it has advantages, you know, because they, by reducing the supply of, of used vehicles, it helps their residual values. Um, also, you know, putting them out there, you know, it gets the riders, you know, the passengers that are using these services into relatively new vehicles from the manufacturer. They're exposed to these vehicles and say, hey, this is pretty nice. You know, and, you know, it hopefully, you know, the the hope is that it, it turns some of those people into people, you know, into potential customers that would consider, you know, once they've had a chance to ride in your vehicle, you know, hopefully they'll uh, consider buying See, one I, to buy a vehicle. I almost think that's probably the worst argument for the whole thing. Is to say, like, no, no, no. These people who like the ride hailing service when they're out of their minds drunk will eventually ride in one of your cars okay. and decide to buy it. Okay, disregard that one. You still have all the other aspects. No, I know, I know. I just think that I think that one little part of it. Vertical integration. Um, you can take a lot of cost. You know, at least in this particular scenario, you can take a lot of cost out of the system because you're 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 not. Um, you don't you don't have to pay a you know, slice of the revenue uh, as big a slice of the revenue to the banks that are financing this. You don't have to pay some other company. Oh, yeah. Buy the cars, you know, because whoever is selling you those cars is going to want to make a profit on them. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's way more efficient. More, yeah. So, you know, for, for a car manufacturer, it makes a lot more sense to do this than for a company like Uber or Lyft.
Yeah. Well, and so, and it's funny, like the more I talk about this, about how to try to find efficiency within these, these models, like I just wind up inventing the taxi industry. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh no, you get the used cars that aren't, you know, they're not quite the high end models. So like, yes. The taxi industry, well, <laughs> like, you know, and you know, I mean, that's, that's basically what GM is doing with Maven, uh, with the Maven gig and, and with the Lyft express drive programs. You know, is taking those used cars and putting them out into the field, you know, in this application, although they're they're generally in much better condition than your average uh, New York City Crown Vic. Right. Which I actually is a rare thing now. I haven't been to Manhattan in a while, but the, the Crown Vic is, is like not a thing in, in New York anymore. Right. It's it's like yeah, they're, they're, they're pretty close to extinct now. Yeah. Um, I, I'm generally not a fan of the taxi experience because. I can drive like one of those guys, but I can't ride while one of those guys drives like they do. I get, I yeah. get nauseous. <laughs> there's, there's definitely a big difference when you're behind the wheel yeah. or a passenger um, experiencing that sort of thing. I feel bad for my passengers, and like I, com- I completely understand how sometimes my kids are like, "Dad, knock it off." <laughs> yeah, I've. I've... <laughs> I've been in that situation, you know, so I, 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 I drive very differently when I have passengers in the car than when I'm on my own. Uh-huh. Uh, good. Good. I'm not the only one. All right. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, even, 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 you know, riding with, you know, with a journalist riding shotgun with me, you know, on a media drive, I've had a couple of them ask me to, uh, back off a little bit. Really? Oh yeah. I generally back off anyway, just cause if it, it, journalists are interesting, there, there are some who, who, who will go and, and, and be really, really imprudent. And those guys are terrifying. Then there's, you know, the guys who, you know, they, you can tell they know how to drive and then they, they do their thing and that uh, that's okay. I, I try, I try never to be imprudent, but right. you know, depending on the type of vehicle that we're, that we're driving, you know, I try to, you know, explore its limits within reasonable right. bounds. You know, I, mean, right. I, I also <laughs> I try not to crash. Uh, you know, I want to keep the car on the road, but I want to see what it can do. Um, and there's, there's been a couple of occasions, um, over the years when, when I've had, uh, um, you know, the, the people that I'm right, that I'm driving with, you know, ask me to back off a little bit just cause they were huh. starting to get a little, uh, a little queasy. Oh, well, well queasy is, yeah. Queasy is a thing. Um, yeah. the ones that, that, so the other scale of terrifying are the ones who are just really horrible drivers. And you're like, well, there is, that. why do you write about cars? <laughs> But anyway, well, and, you know, then there's the ones that, you know, don't know how to drive a manual. Yeah, I find that amusing. Um, yeah. All right. We should know, tell no more tales out of class or whatever. Um, well, yeah, we mentioned any names. No, and I, I won't. Um, but we could talk about self-driving cars because FCA, besides getting bought by uh, Great Wall, uh, they're, they're joining BMW and Intel. Maybe. Um, I So d- d- I think that's going to happen. I think FCA because they like. They're not doing so great on a whole. I'm not impressed with with Alpha. Uh, I think that's been bungled on a variety of levels. Uh, the, the, the they've cars are great. Yeah, but they've hollowed out the automakers. Like Dodge and Chrysler don't have anything new. You know, like like it's that's that it's not bad, but it's old. Um, well, Chrysler could get something now. You know, uh, what we're talking about is, you know, uh, FCA deciding to join this partnership with, between BMW and Intel to develop uh, an autonomous driving platform. And um, 
this was announced last week, you know, and BMW and Intel announced their partnership um, a year ago, uh, along with Mobileye, which has since been purchased by Intel. Um, and <clears throat> FCA has now joined that, you know, the listeners probably were aware, you know, we've talked about it before that, you know, FCA was supplying Chrysler Pacifica hybrids to Waymo for their autonomous driving program. The problem for FCA with that is they're effectively just tier one suppliers uh, on that program and, um, you know, had no access to any of the data or even the autonomous driving system. They were just selling vehicles. Yeah, right. They're basically just selling cars. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, you know, with this one, you know, they're a full partner in the program. They'll be involved in the development of this autonomous driving platform. Um, you know, we, we haven't heard details about exactly, you know, what what they're going to be doing. Uh, but there will be development going on here in the States as well as in Europe um, on, on this system. And, you know, uh, the other you know, BMW and Intel have also indicated that they're open to other manufacturers joining this partnership to help develop the system as well. So it'd be interesting to see if, if others jump in uh, and join this. Um, we'll, we'll see. Yeah. I'm eventually. So it's, the thing that I see is like a lot of automakers are working with a lot of sort of third parties and they're all kind of developing their own solution at a, at a certain point that just becomes too much and it collapses under its own weight. And, and the real sort of the thing that becomes the industry standard or you get several very large established players in the industry that, that emerges, right? Like how many companies manufacture alternators, right? You've got like Bosch, Denso, um, I don't know. Uh, I can't even think of another one off the top of my head, but I'm sure. The, the, Del, uh, well, no, right. Delphi doesn't anymore. Borg Warner now. Sure. Uh, Borg Warner bought uh, Remy. Right. I was for, formerly a part of Delphi. I was going to say Delco, but I knew Delco was like yeah. not a thing. Um, so, so, like, yeah, they're they're part of Borg, Borg Warner now. Right. There's there's not that many. Uh, I guess is the point that I'm trying to make. And like I think I think we're going to see like more of these kind of things happen. And then at a certain point, there's just someone going to get just absorbed, and there's going to be consolidation, and we're going to wind up with three or four sort of solutions that you know get used across. It's not going to be like the BMW solution and the uh, the Audi solution. It's going to be like you know the xyz whatever that that gets used and licensed across other manufacturers or maybe i'm speaking nonsense but that's that's what i see yeah i mean that that's a possibility but i think um you know the other the other thing that could happen here and and i think you know the autonomous driving uh area is perhaps a little bit different because of some of the the liability concerns around this stuff and i think part of why every manufacturer wants to get involved or most manufacturers want to get involved directly um, in this and, and own the systems that are in their vehicles as opposed to just buying them off the shelf from a supplier um, is because they they want they want to have visibility into everything that's in there uh, so they can because they're going to be liable for, you know, when anything goes wrong and, and it will, you know, things will go wrong. The, these systems are not going to be perfect. They'll be probably be better than humans, but they won't be perfect. And so that's that's going to be an issue that um, everybody's going to have to deal with. And I think that's why, you know, um, you know, one of the reasons why, you know, FCA is joining this partnership uh, so that they basically own a piece of this and they have visibility to everything that's in there. And then the other part as well is by having 
by you know having some control over what's in what ultimately ends up going in their vehicles they will have um, access to all the data from those vehicles and they can build services um, which you know this is one of the key things that everybody's trying to do is is build some new service models um, derived from the the vehicle data uh, you know so everything from uh, maintenance and repair you know predict predictions um, to usage based insurance and uh, parking services and and you know local localized deals and, and everything else that can be recurring revenue for the manufacturers as they go forward and and vehicle sales overall vehicle sales uh, decline yeah I look forward to the new day of wrapping my entire car in tinfoil <laughs> and and keep driving your crown vic buddy yeah yeah speaking of cars that are made out of tinfoil <laughs> uh all right so did we get any uh any feedback any questions anything uh come in uh let's see we had one uh from i think she actually came in last week um about uh a mazda version of the toyota supra bmw z4 with a wankel engine and this this is an interesting scenario, you know, with with uh, Mazda and Toyota hooking up and doing you know some um, cross equity investment, uh, you know, Toyota taking I think it, what a ten percent stake in Mazda and Mazda taking about a yeah. percent stake in Toyota. Um, this this could be an interesting proposition, you know. I'm sure that um, you know BMW and Toyota, you know they uh, they've been developing a a new uh, sports car platform together. Uh, and we just saw last week at Pebble Beach, BMW unveiled the concept version of the next gen Z4, which is going to be based on this platform uh, and should be coming out next year. Uh, Toyota's doing a new Supra. Uh, based on this, and we've seen lots of spy photos at the Nurburgring of this thing, um, doing a Mazda, um, you know, and throwing a Wankel engine in it. You know, yes, RX nine. Yes, all yes. Just why not? Sure, I love the rotary. Let's go for it. Um, excellent. Uh, well, good. If if anybody wants to hit us up, I know we have an interview which we'll wrap up the show with. But if anybody wants to hit us up. Uh, you can uh, find us. We are at Wheelbearings Cast on Twitter. Um, Wheelbearings.media is the site, and you can find all the other contact methods uh, there. Um, but why don't we tee up the interview you did, and we can finish out the show for this week. Uh, you actually went out to San Francisco out in Silly Valley, and you were speaking to um, some of the, the folks uh, that are tied up with Ford. Yeah, so uh, Ford uh, did this event, uh, this uh, City of Tomorrow Symposium uh, last week in San Francisco, where they had a whole bunch of city planners from all over the country uh, and uh, uh, people from technology companies. And also uh, uh, some I even saw a couple of folks from uh, from one of the other automakers there, uh, although they, you know, they weren't. Uh, presenting or on panels or anything they were they were present and uh, taking part in conversations with various people and one of the people that was on hand there uh, was Brian Seleski who is the CEO of Argo AI uh, the company that back in February Ford announced they were investing up to a billion dollars in um, and uh, you know Brian came uh, came to this um, new venture from 
uh, Waymo, uh, where he had been working for the last seven years, six, seven years up until, uh, up until last year, um, with, uh, Chris Ermson, who formerly led the Waymo effort. Um, and both Chris and Brian had previously worked together at Carnegie Mellon, uh, and they worked on the, uh, uh, the DARPA uh, Grand Challenge program uh, and the autonomous vehicles for that, including the uh, the Chevy Tahoe that won uh, the Urban Challenge uh, effort in 2007. Uh, so, you know, Brian's got a lot of experience with this. And, you know, he's over the years, he's um, he's his original focus was on software, but he's gotten more involved on the hardware side as well. And over the years and some of the stuff he worked on the, the development of the autonomous sensor suite, uh, at Waymo. And he learned a lot of lessons from that about, uh, um, about what it takes to actually build hardware. And, um, so, uh, Brian and I had a chance to sit down, uh, for about 20 minutes, uh, last Thursday and he, you know, among other things, you know, talked about why they, uh, why he and his, uh, his partner, uh, Peter decided to, um, hook up with Ford, uh, with, for Argo AI rather than, uh, taking, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in venture capital from, um, from some of the rich guys on Sand Hill Road in Palo Alto. <laughs> Who could that be? Um, uh, oh, I'm sure there were there were there were plenty of people, uh, you know, uh, in Palo Alto that would have gladly given him, you know, huge buckets of money, um, you know, to get a piece of Argo. Um, but, you know, for for a variety of reasons, he opted to they opted to go with Ford uh, and work with Ford. And uh, I think the, the explanation is pretty telling. And and, it you know, it, it also, you know, it it fits in with, you know, with my feelings about how, uh, you know, who's, who's likely to actually succeed in commercializing this technology over the next five to 10 years. Yeah. Well, great. Um, we'll give that a listen. We'll finish off the show and we'll, we'll talk to everyone uh, next week. All right. See ya. All right. So Brian Stileski, CEO of Argo AI, Argo.ai. Um, I think it came as a surprise to a lot of people in February when, the announcement was made. First of all, I think when the announcement was made, probably no one <laughs> had ever heard of Argo.ai. But you've, you've got quite a history with automated vehicles, automated driving, going back to the, the DARPA Grand Challenge program. Uh, you, were, you were part of the CMU team, the Tartan Racing team, uh, heavily involved. I think you led the software part of that effort um, with, with uh, working uh, with CMU and, and with GM on the, the, the Chevy Tahoe that won the Urban Challenge in 2007, um, let's, let's start off with a little bit of the, a little bit of your your backstory working with automated driving. You know, how, how did you get started in this area? Well, thanks. Yeah, so um, I started at the National Robotics Engineering Center at Carnegie Mellon, which is a bit of a mouthful. Uh, they call it NREC, and it was applied research lab which focused on taking um, the high-tech research and, and work that the faculty had been doing for years in some cases, and finding a way to uh, place it in uh, commercial applications and military applications. Um, and so I was hired in, in 2004 to work on a, um, on a military program called the Autonomous Navigation System, which was part of the then mandate that a third of the, the U.S. Army's ground forces needed to be automated. Um, Unfortunately, that program eventually was canceled, but that's how I got my start. And, um, you know, it just was fascinated with the ability to write software that could control vehicles and, and 
do it in an intelligent way and have them have human-like behavior. And um, the the work that I always did was focused on um, real-world applications. We wanted, you know, my my group wasn't about writing papers; it was about fielding real systems. And so, um, uh, following on from that military work, I worked on a number of commercial systems. We, I was the software lead for Tartan Racing, like you mentioned, which was the 2007 Urban Challenge entry. Um, and Chris Armson was uh, a close colleague that I worked together with on that program. He was the director of technology. And I brought uh, sort of how industry writes software and sort of process and, and the way to think about building a robust and reliable system. And he brought a lot of the science and robotics background. And together, we, we pushed, um, we, we sort of pushed that program forward. It was, a, it was a great collaboration and loved working with Chris. And then um, following on from that, we worked on the autonomous mining system for Caterpillar. And we actually fielded those systems in, in, in mines in Australia, and it was an amazing team that worked on that. Many of those people came from um, either the Urban Challenge team that we had, or we, we brought talent in from another DARPA program. Uh, which focused on off-road perception, sort of combined the two together, and it was um, it was you know, one of the more advanced systems in its in its day. It doesn't get talked about a lot. Yeah, well, that's the thing. I, I've, I've, I'm aware of the the Caterpillar mining program, and that's something that uh, probably very few people have ever heard of. That you know there are actual autonomous vehicles exactly. that have been deployed in real applications. I mean, off-road mining applications, these giant dump trucks. That's right. But um, yeah, yeah these a, are dump trucks that are they're the size of, of your house practically, and and it was a great early application for it because we could uh, deploy these vehicles in, in relatively closed controls controlled setting, um, and and believe it or not, mine companies take a lot of pride in, in keeping their roads very clean and well maintained because it affects tire wear, mm-hmm. and so that was a great application for us. Music to our ears. We said, okay, great, so we can detect. Um, we, we can detect workers and other vehicles pretty easily, given that these are actually pretty well-groomed roads. Um, uh, you know, they had water trucks that helped keep dust down and so on, that helped really control the environment. And that was a great uh, proving ground for the, for the um, great early application to field autonomous technology. So when, when did you join Google? So I joined, uh, so, so partway through that Caterpillar program, Chris left to go to Google. Um, I had an opportunity to go with them, but felt like I wanted to see the Caterpillar program through a little more progress before, before I would leave. And so I joined a couple of years later, okay. um, in 2011, and um, when I joined, I had, had a pretty neat opportunity to really dig into the hardware side of things. Up to that point, I'd spent my whole career on, on software engineering, and, and I had a real interest in understanding more about hardware development, and got a real uh, great opportunity to lead the hardware team at, at Google. So, um, you know, one of the one of the interesting things that's come to light earlier this year, um, you know, in, in the early Google autonomous vehicles, you know, uh, you could see that you were using off-the-shelf sensors, partic- particularly the, the Validine LiDAR sensors. I mean, that was fairly obvious since they were out in the open there. Um, but you learned that Google um, ultimately went on to develop its, a complete set of sensors in-house that they're planning to use for their system. So were you involved in that program, the, de- the development of the sensors as well as the software? I was, yeah. So my, my focus was on pulling together 
all the different elements you needed to build the hardware stack at, uh, for self-driving cars at Google. And so we had a, we had a supply chain group, we had manufacturing, we had, um, we had different sensor development uh, teams, um, we had vehicle engineering. All those things sort of came together uh, to build the car that you saw or have probably seen on the roads in the Bay Area. The Firefly. Two-seater Firefly yeah. vehicle, that's right. So, um, you know, that was a program that I, that I led and, and sort of built the team to, to carry that forward. Um, it was really, it was a great, it was a great lesson for me. I, I certainly appreciate, I certainly grew my appreciation for how capital intensive the auto business is, right? Um, uh, and how uh, uh, you really have to be very disciplined decision-making uh, throughout the process. You can't iterate hardware as quickly as you can software. And so it lends a different, it's a totally different process and mindset and, and really, um, really added to my appreciation for um, what car companies do. And that, that was, a, was a great experience for me. Yeah, and you, you mentioned earlier um, that you know, when you started at, at uh, NREC, that you know, part of what you brought um, in terms of the way you, you did software development was that rigor you know, of production programs. That's right. Um, what, I guess, what, what had you worked on prior to that that, that, prior to that C- brought you that, uh, that insight? Prior to Carnegie Mellon, I worked at a company called Union Switch and Signal, which wrote um, uh, operator control systems for trains. And so uh, I had written software that, that was mission critical to uh, CSX, uh, Union Pacific, these really large railroad companies. Um, and, and I learned through that whole process what it meant to build software that needs to be delivered on a, on a, on a, on a timeline and really uh, needs to work. Mm-hmm. If it doesn't work, uh, if there's a problem, if there's a defect, an unexpected failure, uh, those companies would see significant downtime and losses and become a real logistics problem for them. So, you know, they had Union Switch and Signal took that reliability very, very seriously and I think um, did a really nice job of, of building out a framework and a software stack that um, was extremely robust. So that was a wonderful experience to have early in my career. Yeah, you know, here in, in Silicon Valley, you know, one of the the core philosophies is, you know, the idea of fail fast and iterate, which, you know, which I think is important. It has a tremendous value. And, you know, my own engineering experience doing, doing software development, you know, um, we did a lot of that in the development phase internally. But I think, you know, the key difference between, you know, what, what you obviously learned doing that railroad stuff and then, and then later on with the autonomous stuff is that you do that before you deliver it. The, I think the, the threshold for what can be considered a minimum viable product is very different when you actually have to deliver something that is controlling physical systems that impacts people. It's, it's so true. It's so true. I mean, you can't, it's okay to fail fast, learn fast, and iterate, but you can't ship something that's unreliable, right? And, and the bar is much higher for delivery. And uh, that was a lesson that, that um, I learned real fast, and, and I think I carry forward in everything we do today. So when you left Google last year, I guess it was probably already Waymo at that point, or, or was it? It hadn't been Waymo. Okay. It wasn't okay. Waymo at that well, point. When, when, you, when, you left, uh, when you left Google, um, and you, start, you, you and Peter started um, Argo.ai, um, obviously, you know, given your background and Peter's background at Uber, you could have very easily gone to any of the the very wealthy VCs uh, in this area and probably gotten a pretty healthy chunk of funding to to get your thing going. 
but instead you chose to go with Ford. Uh, and wh why is that? Can you talk a little bit about why you chose Ford? That's right. Yeah, there was, there's a number of opportunities we could have pursued for funding, like you said. Venture capital money was one way to do it. Um, uh, and and I, I received a lot of conflicting advice as to what, what, the right, what the right answer was. And I don't know there is a right answer, but a few things that were important to me is, is I wanted a partner that would be with us for many years and be really committed to this and, and that understood how, uh, how difficult the problem is. And, and, and the other thing I wanted was uh, a partner that, that brought not just money, but also a real capability that would complement the team that, that Pete and I knew how to put together. And, and, and an automaker made a lot of sense because we knew that we weren't going to get in the auto business. And certainly, as I said, in my Google experience, got a real uh, appreciation for how capital intensive and, and difficult the auto business is and, and realized, you know, Automakers are pretty good at what they do. Let's leverage that skill set. Um, and so uh, I started looking at different ways to partner and, and, and spoke to a number of car, car companies. And, and I really loved Ford for a number of reasons. And, and one of the biggest ones was we were just so aligned in terms of mission and what we wanted to accomplish. You know, Bill Ford's been very, uh, very vocal uh, in the past about the potential of how this technology is, is going to really transform cities. For him, it wasn't just tech. It wasn't just the, uh, 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 a new capability on a vehicle. It was a, a world-changing, transformational thing that needs to work as part of a system, an ecosystem that's going to change how we move things from A to B. And, and, and that's very much how Pete and I saw it. And, and, I, uh, and I realized that not only are we aligned in mission, but they also understand how hard this problem is. They understand, uh, obviously, how to make vehicles. And uh, we just thought we could we could really bolster their their self-driving vehicle efforts in a huge way with with Argo, and so that's how that partnership came came to be. And, and um, I, th I thought that was the right way to, to also raise money since they were so committed, they were willing to put in that funding, uh, the billion dollars, and that gives us stability so that we can really focus on just building the product. I don't have to necessarily worry about um, uh, you know raising money year after year. Um, and that, that was just very appealing to us. So let's dive into the tech side a little bit if we can. Um, in terms of um, software development, you know, um, I think a lot, of, a lot of the team that you've brought into Argo in the last six months has been from the, the team that was already working on this stuff at Ford. How, um, how has um, the approach evolved um, now, you know, under, under the leadership of you and Pete, you know, has there been any kind of fundamental change or do you think that the, the Ford team was already on the right track and, and, you know, you had some, some new ideas to bring to it? Well, so actually we've hired from all across the industry. Um, we've hired software engineers, great roboticists, people from out of school. We've had interns. Um, the, the, the folks that came over from Ford is, is actually the minority compared well, okay. to everyone that we've brought into the company. So, you know, we're over 140 people now, um, uh, most of which have come from, you know, other, other places. And, and, and that's important just because you need, you need people with, with different ideas, different ways to approach the problem. This is a multidisciplinary problem. We want diversity in thinking. That's the only way to innovate and pull something together like this. Um, and in terms of what, um, what Ford had and, and the Argo approach, I, I think we were aligned in terms of what all the major pieces were that need to be built out. Um, and, and I think Ford certainly uh, had, a, 
had a good idea of what the different what the different puzzle pieces are that, that makes up an, an autonomous vehicle team. But you know, Pete and I have had you know, drawing upon our experience going back to Carnegie Mellon. I think we had uh, we added some depth to the to the thinking in terms of exactly what the right algorithms are to try out and and uh, what sort of science to bring to bear and, and and how to recruit and also engage universities effectively as part of the program. You know, I think our experiences gave us a unique perspective on how all that came together, and so we very much are taking a uh, an Argo approach at this point to to solving the problem. As far as kind of the um, the general architecture, um, is, uh, can you talk at all about um, you know in terms of the the perception system in particular? Um, are you using um, machine learning? Uh, neural nets. Um, you know, what what kind of approach are you taking to the problem? Yes, all of the above. So, okay. So we we, we think that uh, first off, we're, we're 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 pragmatists. We want to apply whatever tool is available to get the job done, um, and and so that means that there's no there's no religion here or dogma around how we build this thing. We want to uh, we want to build the nuts and bolts of this system from the ground up in such a way that. We leverage the strengths of machine learning for the problems that it's good at solving, and rules-based programming for the things that it's good at solving. It, it, there's there's no one technique that's a, a panacea that solves all of these all, all the, the whole space of problems um, that need to be solved to field a safe autonomous vehicle system. Um, in terms of the perception approach uh, and sensor configuration, we feel strongly that that a multi-sensor, uh, multimodal approach is required because the strengths. And one sensing type really complement another. Uh, so RIDAR, uh, LIDAR, radar, camera, they're very complementary uh, modes of sensing, and we think all three are essential to unlocking level four, level five self-driving. Um, clearly, you know, the, the multimodal sensor approach you know, gives you some redundancy on that side. On the, the control side, um, or actually on the, on the compute platform side, how much redundancy do you think is necessary for, for a robust system there? I mean, do you need two complete compute platforms running in parallel? Or, you know, I guess what, what, what kind of, or, you know, have you even really finalized what your architecture is going to be there? We haven't finalized it. We have a lot of ideas and, and active debate on what the right thing is to do. And, and we follow a, a you know, typical safety process that, that helps guide what that architecture should be. So we look at um, we, do a, we do a formal hazard analysis process, we look at failure modes in the system, and we really reason in a very critical way what's the best, what's the best way to field something that, that um, is safe but also is, is affordable and meets the, um, the requirements that the vehicle has in terms of the amount of power that's available. Mm -hmm. All those things need to be factored in, and, and that's what arrives at a true system solution to what you're describing. You know, you, you, talk, you mentioned controls real briefly, and, and that's also an important element here. Uh, a lot of people don't realize that uh, even something like braking on vehicles today, uh, even if all the electronics behind the pedal, the brake pedal, fail, the, still the, the physical action of the human foot on the pedal actuates hydraulics, which ultimately causes the car there, to yeah, stop. Yeah, there's, there's a mechanical connection between your foot and those friction brakes. That's right. That if everything else breaks or, or fail, stops working, you're still going to stop. It might take you a little bit longer, but you're going to stop eventually. Exactly. And so when you have an autonomous vehicle, 
uh, with, where there is no human foot to press the, the brake pedal, there, there's now redundancy in the electronics that's required in order to, uh, in order to make sure that, that it's fail operational. But also the, the actuation side as well. As, as well as the actuation. The same thing applies to uh, the, the steering control. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's another big advantage in working with an auto company uh, like Ford is they, they have huge product development teams and, and they've got uh, uh, relationships with all the right tier ones in order to make sure that the, those redundant controls uh, are in place and in place in the production right. All right. Um, anything else you want to add uh, to the to this that uh, think you want to share with uh, the listeners before I let you go? You know, I think we talk a lot about the technology and there's a lot of focus on um, how AI is changing things in a big way and unlocking. Um, all of uh, all this this capability, and I think what's important for people to understand is that um, is that this isn't just uh, this isn't just a focus on the vehicle or on the tech. It's a focus on how to make cities better in the future. And 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 we realize that just adding autonomous vehicles to the equation isn't enough to solve the problem. There needs to be a systems solution. These need to be part of a the autonomous vehicles need to be part of an overall city solution that improves transportation for, for society, for, for the residents of that city. And each city has its own challenges in terms of, of uh, uh, congestion and, and, and other issues, public you know, infrastructure challenges. And, and we're, we're committed, Ford and Argo, in, in working with those cities, working in partnership to make sure that autonomous vehicles extend and complement existing city services in a way that we can really improve transportation for everybody. Argo, Ford, we're about making transportation safer, more accessible, more affordable for everyone. And that's the mission that really drives us and, and, and we're excited about being part of that, being part of that solution. Brian Selesky, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.